The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about one of the oldest women's professions and obviously reform within that profession. Oh, all right. I like talking about profession. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, did nursing need reform? So Brooke, one Mm. of the oldest women's professions, nursing. Is nursing. Is nursing. Shocker. Yeah. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. Women were their entire lives have cared for other women, yeah, which eventually evolved into nursing, yeah, and other men, right? They cared for. Oh yeah, yeah. there's men out there that people care for. Yeah, yep, that exists. Yeah, sorry, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, we're gonna be talking about women in the early mid like 1820s ish time period in American history who were part of reforming the field of nursing, which previously was not something, it wasn't like a field, it was just sort of a default role that women did. Some people were professional healers prior to that, but it was local, it wasn't, there weren't like licenses that you Yeah, education, national boards. Yeah, so there's big shifts that occur to try to regulate that. Um, and someone maybe with a critical eye on it might say that that's because men were trying to, you know, the scientific revolution, people were trying to, um, men were trying to take over this field and women were trying to like stake their claim in it. Um, yep. so yeah, so it's going to be a really interesting topic. We have Dr. Martha Libster coming on the okay. podcast. She is fascinating. She has her PhD in history, but also is a nurse, um, but she also just has this really fascinating life where she's really involved in herbal remedies. She's interconnected with Native American groups. Cool. Um, and and she's won some, you know, recognitions from Native American groups for the way that she integrates um you know, the technology of modern medicine with, with naturopathic remedies. Yeah. Very cool. So she's she's a really fascinating person. She's an award-winning author, um, and I'm excited to have her on. But I feel like we'd be remiss not to talk about your sort of world yeah. where you 
deal with nursing a lot. I do. As a, you know, I work in healthcare, in human resources and recruiting, and I try to recruit not just nurses, a lot of people in behavioral health, but um, yeah, it's definitely my space, which has uh, been my space for a while. But um, prior to my previous role, I would recruit for medical researchers and people in that world. But yeah, nursing in particular is a very interesting profession right now, especially through the pandemic. A lot of nurses have exited the profession, which is really unfortunate. But there was a nursing shortage way prior to the pandemic. There was actually a huge, there's a lot of studies right now of um, how many colleges are actually um, graduating nurses, which decreased significantly in the last six years. Um, and so there's been a huge push to, for colleges to start adding more nursing programs who didn't maybe have them previously, which is very, very hard to do. Increase enrollment, increase graduation. And the tough thing is, is it's a career that people get into in college and actually drop, uh, they almost drop like 70% of their uh, enrollment by the time they're seniors because it's really hard to make it through. There's a lot of evaluations. There's a lot, which there should be. Yeah. It's a regulated field. There's national boards and certifications to be a nurse. So it should be a really rigorous program, but they definitely push a lot of people out through the program. When you as a hiring manager are looking at these candidates on the other end, what mm -hmm. are some of the things that you're looking for in your field? Some big things for us, you know, um, when you're looking is, is specialties. A lot of nurses will graduate and they'll start to narrow focus in certain industries or field. And then it's also in um, organizations that they partner with. So you want them from large healthcare systems. They've had a lot of diversity of, of patient, a lot of diversity of the people that they care for and, and the environments they work for. Whereas if they go into residential care or private home care, you know, really limits their skills that they've mm. had a chance to practice. Mm. So it's a lot. There's a lot that goes into, and like any field, there's specialties and there's skills that people grow mm -hmm. and it is, just depends. Is knowing the history of nursing one of the <laughs> prerequisites? <laughs> Uh, it would be really helpful. But nurses actually learn a lot about nursing history. They so do. my Good. grandmother was a nurse. She was an ER nurse. Hmm. And there's a lot that goes into actually the history of becoming a nurse. And the interesting thing that the nurses actually learn about first is uniforms, which is kind of really like, like you, you wouldn't even think that that matters. But like clean uniform, how you present, how you show up, what hmm. you dress, what you wear is, is very critical to the healthcare field. Hmm. Um, but nurses in particular talk a lot about what they wear, which hmm. is really interesting. And so there's a lot of history as to why nurses wore certain items throughout mm -hmm. history and how they've evolved. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not a lot of professions still that have a historical uniform, which I think is really interesting, too. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Well, I'm excited to get into some of that history. And if you are a nurse and you're out there listening. Thank you. And you yeah, first of all, <laughs> thank you for being a nurse. You're amazing. Uh, you're our angel these days taking care of people mm. during this pandemic. Um, Some would say more than than doctors. I, you know, and oh, yeah. we've both probably had moments in, in the hospital where we saw the overseeing doctor for 0.5 seconds, but the nurse was there the whole time. Yeah, she was the game changer. She or he or they. Um, yeah. always that, that way, but nurses are pretty impressive human beings. Yeah. Um, but also if you don't know your history, maybe that wasn't part of your program today, we're going to teach you a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, also good to know about the people that will care for you and where, where they've evolved from, which is really interesting. 
Yeah. So let's start with Dr. Martha Lipster and have her introduce herself to everybody. This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These Ugh. are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial History Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial History Project for just $5 That's a it? month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you, could produ- you could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. I am a women's historian an oral historian and primarily a cultural historian. Uh, I know that we're meeting today to talk about women's history. So it's one of my favorite subjects ever. And the reason it's one of my favorite subjects is because I am so inspired and energized when I read women's history, because what one has done all can do. And it's very solution focused. Women's history is very solutions oriented. So as an advanced practice nurse in psychiatric mental health nursing, and my PhD is in history, but my master's degree is in psychiatric nursing. And I teach nurses, primarily advanced practice nurses and doctorate prepared nurses. And I create programs and practice models all around the world and work with indigenous healers um, to integrate tradition and technology and an integrative fashion and very inclusive approach to healthcare and healing and nursing, I have found that it's the history that gets us up in the morning. It's what one has done, all can do. Wow, that's amazing. Um, it Thank seems you. like such a niche field that you've wiggled yourself into to be a historian and a nurse and an herbalist and involved in so many things. Um, and it's such a special a specialty that you've you've designed for yourself, which is so cool. Tell me a little bit yeah. about the emerging field of professional nurses in this time period. Well, you know, most American nurses, I can tell you this is I've been an academic for what going on 18 years, you know, um, I would say that 99.9% of nurses, um, well, first of all, let me step back, say out of the 4 million nurses, 
Um, I think it's something like 3.2 million are women. So 91% is the number. 91% are women still today. And I'm not saying any, like, it should be this or it shouldn't be that. It is. And we talk about in the book, you know, I talk about in the book how we have come to be a women's profession. And that's a really important part of our history when we start talking about bringing men into the profession um, and and how women originally kind of opposed that in the 20th century. And there was good reason uh, because it was like the only thing you could do would be a teacher and a nurse, you know? I mean, so if uh, if that's the men could be any anything actually, you know? So, um, so there is a lot of history around the, uh, the professionalization of nursing. And what I always caution nurses in particular, but also teachers and, and the American public is what you see on television is typically not the full breadth by any stretch of the imagination of what an American nurse is or ever was. And today, a state by state, because we are a federation. I mean, we, we license state by state, but we have uh, different ways of approaching professionalism. This notion of a of a board exam or any of those things that supposedly protect the public. And um, I'm talking historically now, so I'm not talking as a clinician or as a dean or a faculty member or anything like that. I'm just saying that from as from a historical perspective, uh, professionalization was not always identified by a license. You know, you carry a license and so therefore you're an expert or you're safe or you're effective in practice, all those things that the American public didn't decide that. In fact, in 1832, physicians had started themselves to license state by state. And uh, the American public during this period that you mentioned, 1830, 1860, which was the American Botanical Medical Movement, that was one of the things, major healthcare reform movements that was going on before the war between the states in 1860. Um, the physicians lost licensure because of public uprising and, and basically discontent with what was going on, with the numerous plagues and the, the not coming up with solutions at that time. And so they lost licensure in every state but New Jersey. Um, and why is that significant? Well, what did what did that mean to lose licensure? It meant you couldn't sue somebody in a court of law. And at that time, that's what licensure meant. Before this period of great healthcare reform, we were um, we were actually very autonomous. We were midwives. We were herbalists. We were in community back into the colonial period. And so this period came along and people were, there had been so many plagues. This was in the middle of the cholera pandemics and women were were basically in the domestic sphere more, uh, more at that time. And so partnered with plants and led, you know, and this book is really about the early formation of professional nursing. And instead of taking one person here or there, because of my own practice in this time, present time, I actually had already identified the uh, daughters and sisters of Vincent uh, of charity of Vincent de Paul, um, and I'd already identified another religious group, the Latter Day Saints, Mormons, known as Mormons, and also the Shakers, because I grew up, as I told you, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I lived right where Harvard and and a number of these Shaker communities were. I used to go to Shaker museums, you know, so I knew that there was botanical industry. So what I did is I did I wrote a history of the 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 three large 
communities of what I found out. We didn't know. I was told I wouldn't find anybody. It would be a needle in a haystack. And I actually opened up such a big. So that's how it came about is I and I had to narrow my storytelling to European American nurses. And this is their original history before licensure. And how did we identify someone as being an expert, safe, effective at all those things is the community knew. The community knew. And how did they know? The proof was in the pudding, literally. You know, did they give them something that worked? If they gave, if the shaker nurses in their infirmaries, in their communities, gave somebody a charcoal poultice for pain in their leg and it didn't work. And before they'd use the pumpkin poultice, they put the pumpkin poultice back on and it worked again. That's science mind, right? If you had asked me prior to this to name important women in early nursing, I would have named Clara Barton and Dorothea Dix in American history. But I get the sense that nursing was much bigger than those few women. And um, I'm curious if you could introduce me to some of these important figures. I'd be happy to. First of all, she wasn't a nurse per se, but she wrote, you probably know Lydia Mariah Child. She was an incredible 19th century writer. And she wrote on sick room management and self-care, actually. And uh, she actually, in her books, talked about how she con- uh, she actually consulted not just with physicians, but with the nurses of the day. So that means there were women who were identified as, as whatever they did in caregiving or partnering with plants. They stood above the, what was expected of women at that time. Women had their gardens. Women had their pharmacies, as I like to say. They would go outside of their kitchen and go out and pick onion and go in and make an onion syrup for somebody who was getting the flu. So then you say, okay, who are the shaker infirmary and community nurses? Well, you're not going to know them by name. One thing is that nursing originated, professional nursing originated in religious communities, both here and around the world. The shakers had formed in the late 18th century under Mother Anne in Britain and come over here to the United States and were populating. They didn't procreate, so they they ultimately died out. There are still Shaker museums that you can go to and you can see all this stuff about their botanical work. But these, if I were to name one, I would give you Prudence Morrill. Why? Because she wrote all of this nursing, how to, how to nurse others um, and with plants as partners. So we have the Shakers. Then I asked, I told you I looked at the uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormon nurses. I'd like to introduce you to Anne Green Dutson Carling. Um, you know, she was incredible. She was actually um, ordained in a sense uh, by Joseph Smith himself, uh, who he and his brother Hiram, as you may know, were killed in Illinois for their religious beliefs and what they were doing in forming the Mormon church. So it was 19th century but she um, she really carried the tradition and, and delivered babies and was a medicine woman, um, partnered with Native people in Utah when they got there, the Ute people. Um, and she has incredible history. And that is preserved. She wrote down a number of her recipes. Um, so she's somebody that you could know. Another one that you might know, uh, there is a, a diary of a Mormon midwife that was written by Smart, and this is published. Um, this is Patty Bartlett Sessions. She was plural, plural, plurally married also to Joseph Smith, and she came from Maine, from Bethel, Maine, delivered 
over 3,600 babies in her lifetime, seriously, and was on the Council of Health in the early Mormon community in Utah, an equal to the, the botanic physicians there. The original Mormon community was very strongly botanical. Uh, they followed 19th century philosophy, no stimulants. To this day, if you're in Salt Lake City and you're in a LDS restaurant, you know, you may not be able to get caffeinated beverages. You know, um, her diary was published, as I said, by Smart. So that's another person. And then the last community, of course, would be the, the Sisters and Daughters of Charity of Vincent de Paul. On the American side, the Daughters of Charity went back um, to 1633 France. So the the origins of American professional nursing are re- all across the board. The the roots of, of Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale trained with the Daughters of Charity of Vincent de Paul in Paris twice, got measles twice and had to leave. Uh, Emily Sieveking of Germany, who started the Fliedner, with Fliedner, the, the hospitals in Germany, they all were trained or had connection with the Daughters of Charity back to with the tradition back to 1633. So my book, Enlightened Charity, this book, um, this one actually talks about that, that history goes that far back. But the fast forward to the American, it is the first American woman saint in that tradition um, is Mother Ann Seton, Elizabeth Ann Seton. Um, And so the Sisters of Charity hospital nurses, so we had the community, we had infirmaries, and then we had hospitals all before 1860. And like I said, most people don't know. So you want to know about, she was not a nurse per se. She was a teacher, um, but nursing is very um, connected with education, obviously. Uh, she actually took the took the the energy and the history from Louise de Marriac, who formed the Daughters of Charity of Vincent de Paul in 1633 with Vincent de Paul himself. They were both, she was a, a common woman, but very wealthy. Um, but she had um, her husband had passed away and she worked with Vincent DePaul. To, um, and that's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful story of the formation of this this professional nursing. These were nurses that would not be religious so much. They would be more secular. It was considered secular to come and go like seculars, but they were apostolic women. So they had you know vows and so forth, but they weren't cloistered. Many women for hundreds of years had been cloistered. And in those cloisters, such as Hildegard von Bingen and others, they developed their herbal knowledge and their herbal knowledge. These daughters of charity had their own books that were written by by brothers of a, of a sister who was the botanic to the king of France at the time. And they had their own books. They called them pocket books. And they would put those herbals in their pockets and then share their knowledge with their patients. And they would create a lot of soups. A lot of herbal soups and herbal teas. And so we continue that tradition in my work today. We continue that tradition of, of herbals. Sister Matilda Coscree did write a book. Um, again, the Daughters of Charity, Sisters of Charity um, did not write books about their work. But that book that actually um, was acquisitioned and put in this book, it's called Advices Concerning the Sick. At the time, there were huge, both here and in France and England, there were huge, huge hospitals, particularly for the mentally ill. And people didn't really want to deal with the mentally ill, right? So there was this big movement to be moral, 
And it had been going on in France for some time, like about 200 years. So Philippe Pinel and others and, and the, the early daughters of charity of Vincent de Paul and St. Vincent de Paul himself, not a saint at the time, just Vincent de Paul. But they had worked to deinstitutionalize, if you will, the, the inhumane care of the insane. So by the 19th century, when the Sisters of Charity were formed by Mother Seton, they could draw on this huge tradition coming out of France to basically not just deinstitutionalize these thousand bed hospitals in New York, for example. I mean, where these they people today in nursing say that there were nurses there. There were not nurses there. Those were not even by any stretch of the imagination of anybody. I've never read any document on it. I've read thousands of documents. Nobody referred to any of those caregivers as professional nurses. None of them. Um, the professional nursing was done in by these nurses who created what would, we would call today residential care. So they would take this big house and 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 institution, like smaller institution, but smaller number of beds, and they would live with the patients, the mentally ill and the insane at that time. That's what they were called technically. And so this deinstitutionalization of these thousand bed hospitals you know, Dr. Took over in England, you know, and uh, Dorothea Dix went and trained with people there. She did not meet Florence Nightingale, but Florence Nightingale by that time was in her boudoir. She did one stint in the Crimea and made changes there and then did all the rest of her amazing work and healthcare reform work from her boudoir. The, Eliz uh, Dorothea Dix was moving around in, in Europe and training and so forth and came back and using her, her power, but, you know, women, women couldn't testify, you know, before Congress. So we have records. Um, I put that in, in Herbal Diplomats in the book where she actually gave her testimony about the decentral, what we would call decentralization or the deinstitutionalization of these mental health. Um, she said that what, what she actually wrote in her documents to the Congress was she used the um, Daughters of Charity or Sisters of Charity, Daughters of Charity work to say, that in Maryland, you know, they had done what she was asking Congress to do, um, that they'd already done it. And they had, in fact, done it. And they let it. And so we have the University of Maryland Hospital today. And, so, and it just things grow in the West. You know, we materialize, we industrialize. And the 19th century healthcare reform movement was all about, culturally, was people's concerns about rapid industrialization and what it would do to society. And Thomas Jefferson, in his presidency, had been very, you know, strong about that, that we were an agrarian economy, we were an agrarian society. And there's some wisdom to that, actually, um, a lot of wisdom to that. Um, I see it as a healthcare provider, just how large systems swallow people up and they don't always get the what we call person-centered care. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this intersection between plants and nursing um, in American medicine? Well, first of all, um, just a, a really important tidbit is when you take any over-the-counter or prescription pharmaceutical, bless the Shaker nurses, because it was them and the Shaker brethren, the brothers, that grew the original plants and created the early, earliest part of the, what is now the pharmaceutical industry. 
And most people think we just had drugs and chemical things, right? But that's not how it worked. Of course, we started with plants, you know, and not all plants, most plants cannot be um, patented because they are hundreds of constituents. Um, and so the way patent law, which also emerged in the 19th century, Thomas Jefferson, very concerned about patent law. Um, the early, uh, one of the earliest patents, um, that happened in terms of taking plants and you can, you can make a remedy, for example, you can make a syrup and you can patent that. Here's an example of something that the early nurses did. They made rose water and mint water. They distilled. They had many women had their own stills in their homes even and would take the plants and make remedies that could last through the cold and flu season if they were in the north uh, because the winter would come and the plants aren't growing. Uh, but depending on where you were in the, in the United States um, or in the world, for that matter, you know, you live according to the seasons. You know, and so we knew how to make medicine and the the sisters, the Shaker sisters, you know, so they actually produced a lot of the early medicaments that we had. And during this time, I introduced you to Lydia Mariah Child, but I should also introduce you to a man named Samuel Thompson. And there are histories that have been written about him. The botanical medical movement of the 19th century, which was the focus of self-care, being your own doctor and so forth, was botanicals. And uh, Samuel Thompson had learned from the widow Benson. She often doesn't get any uh, his women's history. You know, they don't, you know, it's like, where are the women, right? We're saying, where are the women? Um, if you call certain, I won't say the names of certain institutes, and as I did, and ask for women's history, um, you you might be told, as I was years ago, well, we don't collect that because nobody knows who they are. Or you apply for a humanities grant multiple times and people say, well, nobody knows who those people are. I'm like, yes, but they need to know who they are. <laughs> I mean, so it's kind of a catch-22 about women and, and then the nurses is another tier of it, right? So let's just talk about women first and the nurses, you know, kind of latched on to the American botanical movement that was started by Thompson after he trained with the widow Benson and he had a number of personal experiences over his life. He got to the point where he just created this patented system. He had a system, particularly with this plant that he's holding, this is where plants actually lead, I will say they lead healthcare reform movements like, you know, cannabis sativa and indica or marijuana today is leading this huge uh, you know, uh, revolution, I guess, or evolution in American healthcare potentially because it points to the endocannabinoid system, and which is a whole new realm of understanding physiology. It's very exciting, uh, but there's some issues with it because those plants are hallucinogens. Um, this plant is not a hallucinogen, but it led the 19th century movement uh, called the botanical medical movement. It was um, uh, used as an emetic. Um, the belief at the time was that to get better, you had to puke. Um, and so you would take lobelia until you puked, until you barfed, you know, and I tell that to kids, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a fun thing to teach kids, you know, uh, about the pukers. Uh, so here's lobelia in flata. It is a native plant to the United States. So when you teach children 
about this plant, you are teaching them indigenous knowledge, indigenous medicine. The native people of this country, Turtle Island, this is Canada and the United States, it's shaped like a turtle. And when you teach them about lobelia, you're teaching them about a native plant. The native people, Thompson said he found it, right? No, he didn't. Um, native people knew about it. We have evidence of all of that. I talk about that in the book. Um, uh, but it, it's, it was the cornerstone of his system of cures, which were based on teas and uh, such as from this plant and also steams, uh, putting someone into a sweat. Even today, I encourage people sweat, you know, sweat things out, opening the pores. What do viruses do? They close the pores. They close the pores to trap the virus inside. So native people around the world have always known to create a sweat. This is one plant that can do that. So the nurses would get what was called a patent uh, or uh, a license to share these patented remedies. And I was telling you about some of those communities that I studied, uh, Margaret Cooper West in the Mormon community uh, from Kentucky. She was a botanic. She actually was um, a, a Mormon. She Well, she converted to Mormonism, but she was a botanic and she was a Thompsonian. Um, others like um, Patty Bartlett Sessions, others were Thompsonians. They practiced this, this work. Dr. Martha, thank you so much for your time and your energy today. I'm so grateful to you. I have learned so much from you. Congratulations on your award and congratulations on um, all the recognition that you've gotten from these various publications. I'm so excited for people to like go on your website and and download all of these amazing resources to not only improve history education, but just the way that we connect with the environment around us. Well, thank you so much, Kelsey, for everything that you're doing with the History Project. I told you before we started that I support you 150%. All of this is very, very critical to our story, to our identity and to raising the next generations, you know, we always need to think seven generations down the road. And I think what you're doing is, is contributing to that greatly. So kudos to you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.